This episode has been sponsored by Connor Insurance, an auto owner's insurance company. Hi, this is April at Connor Insurance. Prescription costs continue to rise each year. GoodRx is an app that you and your employees can use to find discounts on many prescriptions. If you regularly take a prescription that costs over $250 per month, you should look into an organization called Rx Help Centers. Visit us at ConnorIns.com. Hi, my name is Ray Hilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Truth at Work. And I am at Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana. Imagine the opportunity to gather with over 1,500 fellow Christ followers and hear from a world-class lineup of speakers. This annual conference, now in its eighth year, features some of the most amazing Christian business and marketplace leaders that we bring together to communicate best practices on living out your faith in the marketplace. If you're wrestling through these issues of the integration of your faith, work, and life, or if you simply want to find more meaning, purpose, and direction to your daily work and career, this is an event you don't want to miss. That's the Truth at Work Conference, Friday, November 8th. Check out the website, and we'll see you there. And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Ray welcomes Jay Bennett, chairman of the Halftime Institute and the National Christian Foundation. Follow the cloud and then let the mystery do its work. Don't try to dot every I and cross every T yourself. Let the spirit have margin in your life so that you do your best, but you create space for the spirit to invade what you're doing and what you're about because the outcomes will be better than what you might have muscled your way through yourself. Hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. We are so grateful that you've joined us for another episode, and this is the program where our goal and our intention here is to really help address that intersection of life, faith, business, leadership in the marketplace. We are here to encourage you as a Christ follower. Maybe you own a business or you lead a department or you're a leader in in the marketplace. We know that at times that can get lonely, that can get discouraging, and you can feel isolated. Well, we are here to encourage you to become more of who and what God has called you to be in the marketplace. And that's what I get to do. It's an amazing blessing here. I get to travel the country, talk with some of the most amazing Jesus-loving, Christ-following business leaders across the country, north to south, east to west. And I am in the beautiful Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota, and I have the incredible privilege today to interview Jay Bennett, who is the chairman of the National Christian Foundation, as well as the chairman of the Halftime Institute. We're going to learn all about those great organizations, but more importantly, we're going to learn about Jay today. Jay, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Ray, delighted to be with you. Welcome to the Twin Cities. Well, Jay, we're going to learn about your career. We're going to learn about business principles and so forth. But just uh, tell us a little bit about the National Christian Foundation, Halftime Institute, your role there, roles in those two organizations, and then we'll work our way back. But help us understand a little bit of that. Yeah, thank you, Ray. I'm a lawyer business guy by trade that created a private foundation to support Christian ministry back in 1983 that morphed into a community foundation here in the Twin Cities in 2000. And we were approached in 2003 by the National Christian Foundation that was uh, started by Larry Burkett and Ron Blue and Terry Parker 
back in 1982, and the NCF had adopted a strategy to grow out of its headquarters in Atlanta, not organically, but by affiliating around the country with existing community foundations. So the NCF has, over the years, grown to now have affiliates in 30 cities, with the corporate office in Atlanta being the uh, back office for all 30 affiliates. And the NCF is the world's largest faith-based provider of donor-advised funds, which is a fast-growing, the fastest-growing mechanism for charitable giving. It's the fourth-largest overall provider behind Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard, more secular providers. But uh, donor-advised funds are a very popular way for gifting, and our ministry, in large part, encourages people to think about giving creatively not only cash, but other kinds of assets, publicly traded stock, and business interests and things like that. So it's a privilege to serve the NCF both nationally and here locally in Minneapolis. The Halftime Institute is a ministry started by a wonderful Texas guy, Bob Buford, uh, wrote the book Halftime, which is uh, almost ubiquitous in how it bounces around and is referred from person to person. But it's a ministry the mantra of which is to move from success to significance. But Bob was a man of deep faith and uh, knew that, as he said, the the Lord wrote the book. And so really it's much about surrender or submission and how do we come to understand that God has us gifted for his kingdom purposes. So I'm greatly privileged to serve both organizations. So I want to go back just for a moment to NCF, and then I'll jump back to halftime. Tell us more about donor-advised funds. You know, if I'm a business owner, business leader, marketplace leader, I'm listening to this, tell me more about that. I've heard about that, but I want to know more. Yeah, and thanks for the question. And if your listeners are not aware of what a donor-advised fund is, I encourage them to think about it because it is an explosively fast-growing charitable giving mechanism. The NCF has about 20,000 donor partners, uh, each of whom has a donor-advised fund. I've got the Jay and Sarah Bennett Family Fund, one of 20,000 funds that exists under the public charity exemption of the National Christian Foundation. So my wife Sally and I do almost all of our charitable giving of publicly traded stock and other assets into our NCF giving fund. We get a tax deduction from the NCF. If the asset is other than cash, the NCF sells it immediately, puts the money in our fund, where it's invested until such time as we advise the NCF on where we want the uh, distribution to go. So last year, the NCF brought in about a billion eight hundred million of contributions and sent out a billion seven hundred million to about twenty six thousand different nonprofit organizations. So advantages to this type of approach are what? One massive advantage is that you can uh, give at any point in time at year end if you're not quite sure what you want to do and you're looking with your accountant at your situation, you can make a year end gift and get the tax deduction and then give the money away over a period of time. You can give it all away the next day. There's no requirement to give it away. So you can, in the event you have a larger event or a liquidity event, you can literally capitalize your charitable giving over an extended period of time. So there's certainly financial tax advantages to doing it, but there's great kingdom advantages to this as well. Would you just speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we uh, we ask our donor partners would they rather support Young Life or the U.S. Treasury? I mean, they can literally make choices as to whether tax dollars go to Uncle Sam or go to their favorite charity. And when we ask that question, we typically get, well, tell me a little bit more about that. So absolutely, it's a way to allocate wealth. You know, we believe wealth creation is a gift from the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.18 tells us that. 
He gave us the ability to create wealth for his covenant purposes. So as we come to realize that in our own lives and think creatively about how do we give and how do we give perhaps not just cash but other assets that we've been blessed to accumulate, the whole joy of giving ramps up and it becomes much more intimate. And so this whole career and experience in, in dealing with, with this really led to a book called How Much is Enough? Just this little tiny question. It's kind of an interesting title. Classic question over the uh, millennia, I think. And uh, as I've looked at the issue, I'm a guy who uh, clearly, through many, many years, uh, sought to, uh, despite what Jesus told me, uh, serve God and mammon. As a lawyer business guy, I wanted one foot on the dock and one in the boat. And I look back, and uh, that was my story for a long time. And then uh, over experience, I came to realize that we really have to uh, identify mammon and uh, subordinate it at least in a way where our relationship with the Lord opens up. So uh, how much is enough is clearly a question that triggers a secular response. How much money have I accumulated? How many homes do I have? How many cars am I driving? But as I think about what Jesus might say to that, he might say, well, how much is enough of what? Because he then follows it up knowing that the true riches, intimacy with him, revelation of uh, his nature, of the, of the Lord's spirit, of the fruit of the spirit, those are true riches that wait on the backside of a freer journey around what we do with earthly riches. So it is a journey. We're each on the journey uniquely. But I believe when the question of how much is enough comes up, there's another question in terms of how much is enough of what. And I just summarize that by saying intimacy with the Lord and a joy-filled life that uh, is, in my own experience, more difficult to experience if I've got one foot on the dock and one in the boat. Yeah, fantastic. And we're going to come back and we're going to flesh out some more of the principles and things that you talk about in the book there. But I do want to jump back just briefly. I want to hear more about Halftime Institute. Many of our listeners are going to be familiar with Bob Buford and maybe heard of Halftime Institute. But at the kind of street level, what are some of the functions, some of the activities? Who participates in Halftime Institute? Why? How do they get involved? I'd like to hear more. Yeah, Bob Buford understood that many of us go through seasons of life and that many of us target what the world tells us to target in terms of earthly success. And that many of us along that journey, as we experience that, ask questions like, well, is that all there is? Or we have a a feeling of discontentment that develops in our lives. Halftime is a ministry that recognizes men and women in the marketplace who are moving into that season of questioning what might be next. And it's got a 20-plus year history with hundreds and even thousands of case studies of people that have been on that journey. So it's able to minister to them and nurture them through a season of change toward what we call their Ephesians 2.10 calling. Ephesians 2.10 is a verse that says that, that you, Ray, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that were ordained for you beforehand that you might walk in them. In other words, for workmanship, our masterpiece, that's another word, you are God's masterpiece designed by him for purposes that he calls you to. And so we help people discover their Ephesians 2.10 calling and then think about whether or not they can augment uh, their work experience in a way that's a kingdom-based thing. They can do it at work or transition into some other aspect of their journey. So it's an ongoing, unique 
customized uh, content delivered ministry that makes a huge change in the lives of a lot of people. Headquartered out of Dallas? Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, right. So are we talking like online classes or local small group meetings? How would I get engaged if I'm interested in learning more? Yeah, probably a pat answer. You can look at the halftimeinstitute.org or you can just Google it. But the primary service offerings are small gatherings of like-minded people that get together. We have cohorts. They generally meet in Dallas, although they meet in other places as well. But cohorts of 10 or 12, sometimes 14 or 15 men and women that meet typically quarterly and have a coach who is an experienced halftimer to help guide them in between quarterly meetings and on an ongoing basis. So it's a fellowship of like-minded marketplace folks that get together in a trusted environment where they can talk about the real issues that are perhaps behind their worldly success as they think about uh, seeking more meaning and uh, significance. And again, I say surrender or submission in their lives to the Lord's call. Yeah, fantastic. So you weren't always the chair of the National Christian Foundation and Halftime Institute. You had a very prolific, very successful career. Tell us about that, and then we want to learn some of the lessons you've learned and failures and successes. Tell, tell us about your career. Yeah, I actually think and have always felt I'm an unlikely chair of either organization, so it's a bit of a mystery. But I'm a lawyer, business guy by trade, started uh, with a big national law firm. I think I learned a lot of good things there. I also worked really hard, and uh, at age 30, long ago, kind of said, hey, I want to stay married, and I want to uh, coach Little League football and baseball. So I started off to create my own law firm, which I grew over the years and had the privilege of because it was mine of being able to engage in business transactions, a little more freedom from just the straight practice of law. So a combination of law and business. And then Sally, my wife and I, uh, in May of 1981, had a renewal experience through a a ministry called Curcio, where uh, we both had a near visionary realization of the the price that Jesus paid for each of our lives. And that uh, put me into a pot of uh, prayerful wondering what was next, and uh, out of that bubbled this opportunity to create a private foundation. So I had kind of a schizophrenic life of law and business where resources flowed at least for good deals. And the other side was foundation work, trying to support ministries that were in need and wonderful grassroots people that had given themselves completely to the Lord. So it was a little bit of a schizophrenic journey. You know, make eye contact with a ministry, ministry leader and get a grant proposal the next day and things like that. So it was this journey, a combined journey that uh, I was on in which I learned more about my own habits of uh, having one foot on the dock and one in the boat and of serving God and mammon. And over a period of years, too long of an extended period of years, I came to the realization that I really needed to make more of a choice and subordinate the world in many respects, and my desire and quest for accumulating wealth and subordinate that in favor of giving myself and surrendering to the Lord. And uh, so it was a long journey, again, longer than perhaps it should have been. And I have a passion for trying to help other people shorten their journey. That's really powerful. And what I'm curious about is when you were in the height of your law career, what role did your faith play in that? And how did it shape your decisions or how you practiced or interacted, you know, what what could you tell us about that? I think uh, as my faith matured, it shaped uh, my behaviors, it shaped my motivations, uh, it helped me uh, make decisions in terms of who I was going to work with and 
my own behaviors in terms of uh, how I was going to act. So my faith was a huge, I believe, part of my journey. I, I felt that I was on an ongoing spiritual journey of sorts, and yet I was able to kind of accommodate that, rationalize it in terms of my simultaneous desire to accumulate wealth and kind of balance both of those. 1999, when I was 50 years old, was a key year in my life because I was heavily involved in taking my best corporate client through a merger with its biggest competitor and then went public in 2000. That was a particularly acute season for me of my balance or imbalance between wealth accumulation as I counted my shares of stock in that company and a, a sense that there was more. And so it was a progressive ongoing journey over an extended period of time. Very good. And, and something happened to you physically kind of in that season of life. Can, can we talk a little bit about that and how that shaped your journey? Yeah, I uh, worked my tail off in 1999 and 2000. Uh, got pneumonia twice during the uh, cycle during which we uh, merged and then went public. Remember the investment bankers telling me to go home? And I said, I'm not going home. You know, I'm gonna, this deal is going to close before I go home. As I had two bouts with pneumonia, we got the deal closed. And on the back end of the IPO, which was the second deal we were involved in, I was hit with a, a neurological disorder that uh, took my voice for uh, six years. And as you know, Ray, I've mentioned to you, there weren't that many people in the Twin Cities that were upset about one lawyer who couldn't talk in this town. <laughs> but uh, it was a journey, a six-year journey on the back end of all that work in which uh, the Lord uh, took away from me my ability to kind of control and manage and muscle my way through the events of life. I'm thankful for that history, but uh, he quieted me down for an extended season. Okay, I want to talk about that for just a second, because as I'm listening to this, Jay, I'm just imagining for myself what that would be like. Six years, you had no voice. Is that correct? Yeah, this neurological phenomenon was one in which when I would go to speak, the brain would send electrical impulses to the muscles that open the vocal cords. So they would pop open, and I could not push enough air through them to create vibration. So I had no sound. I could almost like playing the tuba, push enough air to create a whisper, uh, but a very, very enervating uh, condition that went for a long time. Okay, so I'm just imagining, I'm just, just, listen, just think about this for a second. Six years, you can't speak. You can't get anything above a whisper. How did you handle, like, I'm imagining like when I get upset, when I get angry, first thing that goes, my, my volume and my voice goes up. What was it like to be angry with no voice? I, I know that may sound like a Weird question, but tell me about that. No, I think that was a real part of it, is there was that repressed anger of sorts that maybe couldn't have been expressed. Also, a lot of physical exhaustion. Yeah. I was blessed to have an amazing, spirit-filled, loving wife who not only persevered with me, but you know, spoke life into me. And I was blessed, uh, as a result of my own faith journey, to have friends who were also I think more mature than I and maybe more prophetic than I. And so they spoke life into me. They spoke healing into me during a season when I didn't really quite have the faith to know I could get there, but I was able to embrace their faith in a way that it was a, a surrogate experience in many ways. And as my own journey uh, continued, I, in July of 2004, went to Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And in the opening scene, Jesus is in Gethsemane. And Isaiah 53, 5 pops up on the screen, and it's the famous verse that says, by his stripes we're healed, but it also says that he was chastised for our peace. 
And in July of 2004, at uh, age 55, uh, I was not uh, peaceful. I couldn't muscle my way out of this. But when I saw that he was chastised for my peace, what I saw in that movie, what he went through, I literally left the theater that evening saying, you know, if Jesus paid that price for me, I'm going to be peaceful. And I had an invasion of his presence over time that brought me to a more peaceful platform where I thought even if I'm never healed in this world, I will be healed. And I uh, submitted at a level that was below what I historically had ever been able to submit to or willing to submit to. And out of that came a path of really miraculous and world-class medicine restoration, where as of today, I have a substantially fully restored voice subject to uh, certain things like humidity and temperature, but it was a supernatural uh, invasion of my life, for which I give tremendous thanks, in which I know that the Lord was intimately with me throughout the whole journey. That's incredible. So as you look back, whether it's through that season, Jay, or prior to that, or even after that experience, let's talk about in your career, your business career, what's the hardest decision you ever had to make? How'd your faith play a role in that? How'd your faith get you through that? The hardest decision. Yeah. I think we value many things in life, and um, on many occasions, value has monetary parameters to it. I think the bigger question is what's priceless in our lives, and what do we do with our lives to protect, ensure, and help that grow? So my biggest challenge over the years in many respects has been choices between work and priceless relationships, not only with the Lord, but with Sally and with my boys. And so I made a decision to leave a national law firm for the sake of my marriage and uh, for the sake of my family. And over the years, I think, uh, especially perhaps as I matured a little bit, I was able to distinguish between the price I was willing to pay for certain engagements versus what that might cost me in terms of what was priceless in my life. So if I'm listening to this conversation and I'm a business owner, I'm a business leader, and I'm wrestling with this very issue, I've got a big decision and I'm having to make a decision between pursuing this business deal or your term, this priceless relationship. How should I make that decision? How should I go about how to make that decision? Clearly, it's a subject for prayer, but I think it's a subject for collaborative prayer with your spouse as well. Um, And um, there's a lot of attraction to the next business opportunity, perhaps the next transfer. I think it's just important to count the cost, to think beyond the what the world says is uh, the way to be successful and to really value a more balanced approach to life and to think about what's the price to be paid and are we of one accord in this regard? Because there will be a way, even absent what appears to be the world's best opportunity right in front of me, an opportunity to choose what is priceless will have rewards that are far greater. I love that. And and to me, that's about making long-term decisions. And it's about determining what we are to pursue in life. And I think it's a great transition for us to talk more about your book. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. So I'm actually holding a copy of this. I've had a chance to read this. It is titled, How Much is Enough from Earthly Riches to True Riches? Why this book? Why you? Well, it's just uh, sometimes when you get an uh, idea about writing something, you just have to get it out of your system, and that little book is kind of a manifestation of that. But also in my own journey, law, business, and 
seeking the kingdom and thinking about generosity and serving the National Christian Foundation in particular, um, I've come to know there's a real difference between earthly riches and the true riches. And there's a journey from one to the next. And the world would tell us that earthly riches are what's important, but Jesus tells us that the true riches are really what are more important. The true riches are much about intimacy with him, intimacy with the divine, a greater understanding of the nature of the Lord, Isaiah 11:2, that the spirit of the Lord is a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and counsel and might and reverential and obedient fear of the Lord. And Galatians 5:22, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I believe that as we come to get a whiff of the true riches, intimacy with the Lord, it becomes a, a, a tractor beam of sorts that draws us more and more into that. And I believe that generosity, generous living, including generous giving, is a portal into divine intimacy. That as we live a more generous life, we're able to recognize the repressive power of mammon in our lives, that we're able to recognize that in our lives, we're able to demote those forces in our lives. And at the same time, the Lord comes and meets us with intimacy and uh, meaning that just makes that side of the equation much more fulfilling. So there's a journey from earthly riches to true riches, and our great passion at the NCF is to help people embark on that generosity journey because our desire is that they experience that intimacy. The NCF's purpose statement is that love gives. God is love. God so loved us that he gave us Jesus. Jesus so loved us that he paid the greatest gift. There is no greater gift that one would give his life for another. And he calls us to give, to love, to be generous. And so as we follow the example all the way from God Almighty through his precious Son by the Spirit into our own lives, we have an opportunity to journey from what the earth says is so valuable into what the Lord and the Word confirms are so valuable, and the DNA that's within us is released in a way where that intimacy manifests in our lives. It makes lives a whole lot better. As I'm looking at the book, there's a very interesting picture of you on page eight, and you are bound up, you are wrapped up in saran wrap. What's that picture conveying? Uh, Jesus tells us that we can't serve God and mammon. In many Bible translations, it says money, but I prefer mammon. I believe, and I think evidence indicates, that mammon was an ancient Chaldean god of avarice or greed. And we have in culture a massive commitment to wealth accumulation in many ways to greed, though that's a really hard word. And what I do when I wrap myself up in saran wrap is to try to expose this spiritual force that lives in so many of our lives. It basically is a laminate around our lives, which is invisible to us. We're not conscious of it, but it, it wraps us up in ways where it limits our ability to live generous lives. It focuses on our own accumulation. As a result, it really it limits our ability to grow in intimacy with the Lord. So. I wrap myself in saran wrap as evidence of this invisible laminate, a spiritual force that Jesus called mammon. You talk about in the book about the role of the American dream in all of this. 
And we have international listeners here, but most of our listeners are certainly within the U.S. So let's talk a little bit about how, what role does the American dream play in this whole love of mammon? Tell us more. Yeah, I think it's really important to look at our own lives uh, generationally backwards. My paternal grandfather was a rural mailman and a night janitor. And my dad was the oldest of eight, and he learned to work early in life. My uh, maternal grandfather was a Swedish immigrant, came to America for the great American dream, the opportunity. He was a uh, night security guard, clearly had a poverty mentality, which perpetuated through my own family, something I had to deal with. But the desire to overcome and to make money and, and the affirmation of that in the American dream is a driving force in culture, which for many, from the time they come into the world and they're nurtured and raised up with that expectation, and then they pursue it until they discover that it's a uh, an idol. And the Lord just doesn't partner with idols. So there is a generational process of, of forgiveness and healing, but then it's just a change of mindset where the American dream might not quite match up with the uh, calling the Lord has on our lives. <laughs> so... I'm thinking, you know, I'm I'm listening to this, and I'm a business owner. I'm building a company and an organization. And I said, no, wait a minute, Jay. Uh, I've got these employees I need to provide for. I've got customers to serve. I've got my own family's needs and so forth. How do I address all this? I mean, how do I pursue the Lord's riches and what he has for me, and yet I still have this stewardship? I still have this responsibility in provision. Help me work through that. Yeah, I think so. Many wonderfully gifted entrepreneurs who have been blessed with the ability to create businesses oftentimes do think downstream toward the people they love and their employees and and want to serve and create opportunity. I think life is a matter of uh, ascending toward the Lord on an individual journey and reaching back, reaching up and reaching back. So many business owners that we deal with at halftime and at the NCF enter into this season of you know, not only what's next, but how can they use the benefit of their experience to uh, make a difference? And that can absolutely be done, and is most often done in the very businesses that they're in. But I think it takes an intentional process of uh, trying to go deeper, trying to really seek one's own sense of calling, and then moving toward a more mature kingdom view of how do I use my standing, how do I use the business that I've built, how do I think about uh, committing it in significant ways to the Lord and think creatively about it? It offers a whole other upside, a next season of experience, even in the same business, that can bring a whole new dimension and vitality to uh, the years that are ahead. Okay, so that's helpful. And now I want to go one layer, layer deeper to practicality, right? How much is enough? How much do I need to live on? How, how do I work? Not that I'm looking for a number, but what's the thought process, Jay, that I, that I can work through to help me and my wife, my family, determine how much we need versus how much God's calling us to release? What have you learned? Yeah, we've learned that, that uh, at the NCF and at halftime that until a, an individual or a couple have a finish line in the context of what do they need for themselves and what do they want for their children— it's very difficult to enter into a realm of freedom as to what they're going to do with discretionary wealth or opportunity to serve the kingdom. So the first response is think about a finish line. How much is enough for my wife and myself? And there's oftentimes a journey that one goes through where one progressively 
thinks about that. And um, we have responsibilities. The word tells us that we're worse than an infidel if we don't provide for our own. But very few of us take a really close, hard look at how much do I really need to accumulate if I'm going to live to be 100 at 4%? How much on my investments do I need to make in order to sustain my household? And how much do I want to give my kids? Do I really want to empower them and give them an amount that nurtures their future and helps them have some advantage? Or do I want to enable them and in many ways cripple them by just dumping resources on them that can be disastrous? We compare generational wealth transfer to dynamite. If you know how to use dynamite, you can blast your way through mountains with it. If you don't know how to use it, it can be disastrous. Finish lines, both in terms of how much is enough for my wife and me, and how much am I going to give my kids, and have plans that you look at every year to reevaluate that number. Yeah, and and what role, back to the American dream, what role does just the way our mindset is in this country, retirement and comfort and and ease and security, what role does that play in all this decision-making around the finish line? Yeah, I think retirement is just a new set of tires. Uh, most people I know... <laughs> I like that. Most people I know who retire and go play golf uh, have uh, challenging outcomes on the back of it. I played golf in Naples a couple of years ago with a group of buddies that their fourth was not with them that day, and they called themselves the Pips. Previously important people was uh, who they referred themselves to. Uh, I think if you've been in the marketplace and you've had a good run, it's absolutely appropriate to take a break, perhaps for a while, and even build a break into your annual routine, but you've been in preparation for something that's next. You've got a season of life ahead of you that in many respects will be the most invigorating, best season there is. I compare life sometimes to the Triple Crown. You know, I ran the Kentucky Derby a long time ago in my law and business career. I ran the Preakness some time ago, um, and I'm running the Belmont now. And in order to win the Triple Crown, you've got to run that race, which for many will be the longest run on the softest track, but that will determine whether or not you run for the prize that the Lord intends. So run the Kentucky Derby, run it well to win, run the Preakness, and then run the Belmont for the prize. That's fantastic. Well, well, Jay, we are already in the last section of the conversation. It's flown by for me anyway. The last section of questions, I got consider this as my advice and and, uh, insights section, right? So as you look back over the course of your life, your career, if you had one thing that you would do differently, if given a chance, what would you do differently and why? I would uh, have shortened the extended season in which I uh, served God and mammon. And that doesn't mean that one can't continue to make money and accumulate some and give a lot away. They say that making or that money can't make you happy. Well, I think it can if you give it away. So I would, uh, mm-hmm. I would, I would shorten the season if I had the discernment in which I kind of wanted it both ways, one foot on the dock, one in the boat. I would have had the faith to uh, continue to use whatever ability the Lord may have given me to create wealth, but I would have uh, reallocated it sooner in life because what I've experienced in my own journey from earthly riches to the true riches is the joy and fulfillment and meaning that flows out of a more generous life for the benefit of others, and that experience is far more rewarding than any trip I've ever taken or anything I might have purchased. True riches. 
True riches. Is what you're talking about there. And so I'm going to just ask you a really crazy question here. If you had a chance to go back and advise the 20-year-old Jay Bennett, what advice would you give to the 20-year-old you? Buy Microsoft. <laughs> would have uh, substantially reduced the challenge between one foot on the dock and one on the boat, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was going to be a doctor all my life until I got to uh, the chemistry courses and the science courses that I had to take in college. And praise the Lord, he took me out of that uh, thought. Uh, I look back on my own life as like a Lewis and Clark expedition where they left St. Louis and went to Mandan, North Dakota and buried themselves for the winter in 40 degree below weather. And so I look back on my own journey and it's been a uh, not only circuitous, but zigzag journey. There's so many things looking back that I suppose I might have done differently. But what I really realize now is how much the Lord was with me through all those years when I didn't know him as well as I hope I know him now. So there's a long list of issues I might have done differently, but seeking greater intimacy with him and using my skill sets for his kingdom are of generic references that I, that I would respond with. That's fantastic. And I, I, what I'm about to say, I don't think I've ever said, uh, I've done over 120 of these interviews for Bottom Line Faith, and something hit me as I was listening to that last answer about what would you give as advice to your 20-year-old self. What I'm coming to discover, and it's just hit me while we're recording this, is that th those individuals who are walking with the Lord at this late stage, later stages in life, almost all of them have no regrets in terms of I would do this differently or that differently because they can now look back and see how each thing in their life God used to draw them closer. I never really realized that until sitting here having this. I mean, that, that thought just hit me because I've had several wise leaders just like yourself say, no regrets, mistakes, but no regrets because God used it all. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'll add in deference to the most important human in my life, my dear wife, Sally. Hmm. She prays me out the door every day. And she says, follow the cloud and let the mystery do its work. The nation Israel followed the cloud. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. When the cloud moved, they moved. I've not been the most patient person in the world, and I haven't always followed. I've led. Follow the cloud and then let the mystery do its work. Don't try to dot every I and cross every T yourself as you practice law by the hour, but let the spirit have margin in your life. Let the mystery do its work so that you do your best, but you create space for the spirit to invade what you're doing and what you're about because the outcomes will be radically sometimes different, but almost always better than what you might have muscled your way through yourself. Follow the cloud and let the mystery do its work. I love that. It's a great segue to my last question, and there's so many more questions I'd love to ask if we just had the time, but this is, this is always the last question I ask. It's rooted out of Proverbs 4.23, where Solomon writes, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all of life. So as we end our conversation today, what would be that one piece of advice that above all else, what would you say? I would likely say, love your spouse. I've discovered in my own marriage that the manner in which I love or fail to love Sally is a tremendous witness, not only to my own household, but to others. And that as one flesh, we together combine more of the Lord's nature than either of us can. And that uh, 
as I look to her and try to see the Lord in her life, which I see readily, um, my ability to love her is my best manifestation of what I can be and how the Lord might use me. So love your spouse is my response. That is fantastic. Well, Jay, thank you for being our guest here today at Bottom Line Faith. My pleasure and honor. Thank you for your great work, Ray, and God bless you, brother. Well, folks, I really had an epiphany here today that when you are walking in peace with the Lord and the Lord's really shown you his direction and his purpose for your life, there is no regrets. There's things you might have done differently. There's things you would approach differently, but not regrets because we understand that each of those things in our life have played a key role to God having us where we are today. And so Jay's taught me that lesson here today, and I'm so excited about that. And folks, we pray that this program at Bottom Line Faith is simply an encouragement to you as a Christ follower in business, in the marketplace. We know it can be lonely out there. We know it can be difficult. It can be challenging, and you feel like you are all alone. But we're here at Bottom Line Faith to just be a voice of encouragement, to hear great stories and great leaders like Jay who have walked the journey, are walking the journey, just to give you a word of encouragement. And I hope that today you can take one step closer to who and what God is calling you to be as a leader in the marketplace. If you are interested in learning about community with other like-minded Christian business owners and leaders around the country, I invite you to check out the website, truthatwork.org. We are the host ministry here at Bottom Line Faith. Click on the Roundtable tab there. We've got chapters and cities all across America where you can join in community with like-minded business leaders, together growing businesses and organizations that bring glory to God. And with that, I'm going to sign off, and I am your host, Ray Hilbert, here at Bottom Line Faith, encouraging you to live out your faith every day in the marketplace. We'll see you next time. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes. Shepherd has been serving the children of Indianapolis and helping families for 34 years. We work to break the cycle of poverty on the near east side of Indianapolis because we love the children in our neighborhood. We are privileged to watch our neighbors grow physically, emotionally, spiritually, and academically through the relationships we build every day. Partnered with Shepherd by donating $34 to celebrate 34 years. Visit shepherdcommunity.org slash BLF to join us.